0: Vaping typically makes headlines for all the wrong reasons. The high-tech nicotine delivery system is popular with teenagers thanks to its ease of use and reduced smell. But C.D. Howe Research Fellow and Concordia University Economics Professor Ian Irvine says teen smoking in the 1990s was 100 times worse, and that poses a twin challenge today for health policymaking.
1: It's a twin challenge in the sense that uh, vaping can be something that will improve the health situation of a lot of uh, long-term smokers who find it hard to quit. And on the other hand, it poses a challenge because we do not want young people to take up uh, vaping or smoking or anything to do with nicotine because nicotine is a very addictive product.
0: There seems to be some discrepancy, some debate as to how successful switching from cigarettes to vaping actually is in getting someone to kick the habit altogether. Ah,
1: yes. Well, the research has been coming out on this for uh, a couple of years, and I think you are right in saying that it's quite difficult to kick the habit completely, as you say, And uh, what we're finding uh, from the very recent surveys, uh, one came out uh, the the other day from uh, Ottawa, and it pointed out that uh, very many of the people who have taken up vaping who are adult smokers have not yet managed to uh, quit smoking. So there are a couple of stages in all of this. Ideally, one would like to get off nicotine, but if you're a, a lifelong smoker or a heavily habituated smoker, that can be a very difficult thing to do. So uh, in that situation, uh, many health professionals think that the best thing you can do is get onto a, a reduced harm product, such as uh, you know, a heat not burn product, or even better, uh, a vaping product. But it's, even if people manage to take that initial step, it um, still seems to be difficult for them to kick the habit completely. They still seem to take uh, an occasional cigarette along with their, their vaping.
0: I can imagine in light of everything that we're dealing with with COVID-19 right now that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta may want to walk back their use of this term. But back in late 2019, they referred to vaping as an epidemic.
1: An epidemic, yeah.
0: Is that an accurate description as as far as you see it?
1: An epidemic. Um, gee, that's a, it's a very strong word and it's a very emotive word uh, as well. Uh, It's an epidemic in a particular sense. Uh, A lot of young people are experimenting with vaping. Different surveys pose different questions. Some of them ask uh, young people um, have they experimented with e-cigarettes in the last year. Some surveys ask young people if they experimented or used them within the last 30 days. And some surveys ask them if they use them on an almost daily basis. So, what we find from the surveys is that um, uh, a pretty large percentage of young kids have experimented with e-cigarettes, or at least tried them, and most of the time when they're trying e-cigarettes, they are trying a product that has nicotine in them. Sometimes they try a product that has no nicotine, but for the most part, uh, it, it does have nicotine. To what extent is it a vaping epidemic? Well, if you believe that a high experimentation rate is something we should be really worried about, then you might use the word epidemic. If you're interested, uh, if you would think of epidemic as something that describes young people using this product on a daily basis, then you would you would not use the word epidemic. Seems to be the case that about five or six percent of Uh, people in their late teens, you uh, vape on a daily or almost daily basis. That's something we could certainly do without, Um, but in those terms I would say not an epidemic in experimental terms
0: perhaps. 40 deaths and 2,000 illnesses in North America have been linked to contaminated THC-based cannabis, e-liquid. Yeah. And it strikes me that um, this is an industry, and not the cannabis industry as, as much as the, the cigarette industry, that they, they shot themselves in the foot. this vaping technology seemed to be a far less harmful way to ingest, whether it be nicotine or THC, And when I was at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in 2016, everywhere I turned, there was a company selling a new vaping technology. But with the additives and the uh, counterfeit products that have made it into the world today, there is a genuine threat that some of those additives lead to things like popcorn lung and just the, the, the metaphor creates a remarkable image in one's head. It, it seems that we had an opportunity here to do some tremendous good in getting people off nicotine and into a less harmful mechanism but at the same time we got a little greedy and started making the knockoff stuff and now people are scared to vape.
1: Well, I think you've you've described the situation extremely well. The deaths that took place last year as a result of contaminated uh, THC—I think there were about fifty of them in North America.
0: Is that uh, does that number ring with you? The forty is the, the figure that I had.
1: And, and I think the coverage that that um, that time period got in the media really had a very big impact on the population in general. It does seem that the the products that were contaminated came from. Broad, let's just say, and that um, they came from people who were unscrupulous, there's an underground economy everywhere you look these days. Um, and if you, if you just sort of move forward in time, then there was a very unfortunate outcome from that because I think the public at large then became really scared of any kind of vaping, even vaping products that were made by, you know, bona, bona fide producers in North America. And so the, the degree of public ignorance, uh, that's a strong word to use, but the, the public, the degree of public interest, the of public ignorance at the moment is really very, very worrying. I'm, I'm looking at the results of the survey that came out of Ottawa the other day, the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey, and um, they say that if you look at uh, people who never vaped, um, and that's most people in Canada, uh, only 13% of them perceived vaping as less harmful than cigarettes. And and that is an enormous uh, misperception, and it may be preventing hardcore smokers from moving over from their traditional favorite product to a reduced harm product. We do know that um, the vaping product has uh, much fewer, many fewer toxins than a traditional cigarette. Um, We still have to find out, and it'll probably be a very long time before we're sure about it, we still have to find out how... how the reduced toxicity level is going to improve the health of people who continue to consume nicotine. Um, But Public Health England uh, and also the Royal College of uh, Physicians in England came out with reports uh, several years ago advocating that uh, people who couldn't give up smoking consider using uh, a vaping product. And Public Health England has come out with several reports since then of the same nature, and they continue to claim that um, the toxicity level of e-cigarettes is about 5% of the toxicity level of traditional cigarettes. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that people's health is going to improve by 95% because there are um, that many fewer toxins in e-cigarettes, but it does suggest that there should be major uh, reductions in health problems if people who are Uh, long-term smokers were able to switch over to uh, a vaping product and I think this is relatively unknown among the Canadian uh, population and it certainly hasn't been emphasized very much in the media you know I think most of the coverage uh, that we've had of e-cigarettes has focused on the scare concerning uh, youth use and the scare of uh, consuming contaminated products but we haven't managed to get a message across to long-term cigarette users that, hey, you know, there is another product out there that's less dangerous than the one that you're consuming, and you should really consider uh, switching away from the one you're consuming towards that reduced damage product. So if we have an ignorant public,
0: what about ignorant public policy? Provincial laws treat e-cigarettes as if they are just as dangerous as a conventional smoke.
1: Ah... Public policy. This is an enormous question, Michael, and what we've seen in the last few months is the fact that several provinces, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, one or two others, have decided to impose um, age restrictions on access uh, to, the, to e-cigarettes, and they've also imposed um, taxes um, on, on, on these products. So. Um, Those are two separate issues, so let me uh, deal with each one in turn. Let me take the taxation issue first. If you look at what's coming out of Ottawa, you know, over the last year or two, uh, what we notice is that there's no big push at the federal level to impose punitive or indeed any special uh, excise taxes on vaping products. That suggests to me that there's a, a level of understanding in Ottawa that vaping products really are reduced harm products. Um, If it were the case that Health Canada or the Health Agency of Canada were convinced that we should not be permitting long-term smokers to transition over to a reduced damage product, they would have been pushing for excise taxes on vaping and um, the heat not burn products, but they have not done that. At the same time, what we've seen is a great deal of concern raised at the provincial level, and some provinces have I think, rushed in too quickly uh, into this area without um, really perhaps understanding the consequences of what they're doing. So to give you one example, um, it was either, um, I can't remember if it was Nova Scotia or British Columbia that I was looking up the other day and they imposed uh, an excise tax or an excise duty on the heat not burn product, which is sort of an intermediate product, it's one where you've got tobacco inside a sleeve and it's heated rather than burned, and they imposed an excise tax on that product that was exactly the same rate as the excise on cigarettes. That doesn't seem to me like a a very wise way to go. If it is the case we have a variety of products which have different toxicity levels and different levels of danger, then we should be Setting our tax rates in accordance with the toxicity in the in the different products. So I think they're they're rushing in a bit prematurely without having thought thought this completely through. So um, that's a comment on on the taxation. As far as um, age restrictions are concerned, putting an age restriction of twenty one is really unreasonable in the sense that if you consider what we allow young people to do at the age of nineteen or twenty. We allow them to buy alcohol, we allow them to buy cigarettes, we allow them to join the army, we give them weapons, and we allow them to kill enemies of Canada. Where prostitution is legal, we allow them to engage in prostitution, and so forth. And it seems asymmetric to say, oh, we we'll allow you to go out and kill on behalf of the state and consume all of these other products, including gambling, but we're not going to let you buy a vaping product until you're 21. So I think that's just a bad policy from the standpoint of society at large. It doesn't have any degree of consistency over the way we we treat young people in in various different aspects of of our lives. Looking at just the stats,
0: you know, in the late 90s, one in three kids of high school age were smoking a cigarette daily. I looked up the numbers for 2011, the most recent we've got from Stats Canada, and that's down to about 10 to 11 percent. And only three and a half percent of kids vape daily today. So if e-cigarettes contain... Only five percent of the toxins found in conventional cigarettes. It sounds like the fear of teenage vaping is overblown. Not only is it not as damaging to them, but not as many are smoking as we saw regular cigarettes being smoked at the height of the nineties.
1: I agree with you completely. There, that's a that's a perspective I I, I published a couple of months ago with the, with the C.D. Howe, as you as you may know. If you look at the Ontario st- um, student drug use surveys and you go back to the nineteen nineties, as you say. More than 30%, perhaps a third of them, were smoking daily, a product that is 10 times uh, more toxic than an e-cigarette. So, you know, if you if you really wanted to be an advocate for e-cigarettes, you might say, uh, well, you know, the problem then was a hundred times more um, challenging than the problem is today. I think that might be a slight overstatement. But as you say, we have uh, we have a limited number of teenagers, grades. 10, 11, 12, depending on what province you're in. We you have a very limited number. It might be, depending upon which survey um, you look at it, it might be five or six percent. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, three, three and a half percent, but it's somewhere somewhere in in that area. So in a certain sense, it's a much smaller problem than we had in the 1990s. And I think it's, it's sort of good to keep that in mind um, when we to formulating policy, you know, I, I, I referred a moment ago to the fact that some provinces were established 21 as as an access age threshold for people to buy the product. And I I think that if they had reflected on the fact that our, our, our problem with vaping is not nearly as serious as our problem with smoking was in the 1990s, that they might have uh, reconsidered um, that age threshold.
0: What though about harm reduction as being the the critical component to all of this? I, I can imagine that part of the reason why we see such a draconian response to vaping particularly as it relates to teenagers with the the age restrictions and things like that is that there's a difference between uh, smoking a cigarette and using a vaporizer pen insofar as the convenience factor Um, a vaporizer pen um, gives off maybe five percent of the smell that you would get with a regular cigarette or with a joint if we're talking about thc it's easily kept in your pocket you don't need to even have a lighter for it you just pull the thing out and you drag are, are are we perhaps trying to tamp down the interest in this product because it's that much more convenient than smoking a cigarette? Therefore, it's that much more risky to expose it to children.
1: Oh yeah, I mean a very good point. I mean your uh, your knowledge of technology is uh, coming through here, Michael. I uh, I do I do think you're correct in saying that it it is an easier product for kids to use and. That has undoubtedly stimulated the, the high degree of concern on the part of public policymakers. It can be concealed, and the modern product doesn't necessarily give off these big clouds of vapor that the older tank-based systems give off. You know, some people take a get a lot of fun out of taking deep inhalations and blowing these clouds and putting them into formations. But now all of the um, the dual uh, Type products, you know, they're they're made in the shape of a USB key, a memory key. They're very easily concealed. They're very easily used. The thing is that if you if you feel like getting a little hit of nicotine, you don't have to light a whole cigarette. And of course, once you light a whole cigarette, you feel, oh, gee, am I going to stub this out or am I going to uh, smoke the whole thing? So um, it's a it's a terribly convenient thing. I agree with you, and therefore it makes it very very easy for people of of any age to use and that that includes kids yeah
0: so what surprised me was the contrast in the approach that we're taking here in canada versus what we're seeing in britain with the royal college of physicians essentially pushing people to move from cigarette smoking to vaping
1: yeah um I think there's a certain degree of anxiety in Ottawa. I, I, I don't think people in Ottawa are ignorant of the potential benefits of e-cigarettes. Um, but it's one thing to to be aware of potential benefits. And it's another thing to be willing to say, look, we're going to go on a um, public awareness campaign, uh, try and get the attention of smokers and try and get them... to to move over to a vaping product. It will probably surprise many of your listeners to know that in England, um, in a small number of hospitals, and I think I'm just talking about a handful, uh, vape shops have been set up in the lobbies uh, specifically to encourage people who are in uh, quit smoking therapy to go and try this alternative product and see if they can get away from the carcinogen nature of the traditional product. I think that's something we're not aware of here. But to get back to the policy issue, I mean, uh, certainly people in the Public Health Agency of Canada and Health Canada, more general, they are aware of the fact that Public Health England and the Royal College of Physicians have come out with these reports. Um, they, they know all of this, um, but it's a very it's it's a second step, and it's a very big one for uh, Ottawa to come out with a a decision to say, we're going to educate the public uh, on this issue. We're going to have a public awareness campaign because that means they are, because I think they are concerned about being perceived as an agency that might be promoting a product that really isn't very good. I mean, keep in mind here, vaping, vaping is not without damage. It's a reduced harm. Product, you know, you take in carbon monoxide when you when you consume this stuff, for example. So um, I think it's quite hard for um, for Ottawa to take the next step in saying we want to have a, a public awareness campaign and we're going to implement various uh, measures that will help people smoke. So um, just in pursuing that line of thought, if you if you if you think about what that might uh, involve, you would have to ask yourselves, well. Um, what would we do in corner stores and gas stations and anywhere that sells traditional cigarettes Right now we are, we're not allowed to have power walls in retail outlets so we can't have advertising or uh, any statement of um, any statement to do with the uh, the selling of cigarettes. But if we had a public campaign uh, undertaken on behalf of the federal government designed to get smokers to quit, should we then, as a consequence of that, decide to put up signs in retail outlets saying, hey, uh, we sell reduced damage products here. Here is a list of the products we sell. We encourage you to switch from smoking to vaping. So on the one hand, that would be seen as uh, an advertisement for vaping. And on the other hand, it would be seen as a health message. Um, I'm of the opinion that it would be a good thing to do uh, in in uh, where we have these power walls where cigarettes are now in in uh, shelving units and camouflaged i th- i'm i'm of the opinion that it would be a good thing to do to say to the public we sell reduced damage products and these are the products that we sell that's a big step
0: so as a professor of economics at concordia university help me understand the economics of this scenario and you know it- coming right down to Economics 101, that supply and demand equation (laughs) as well. I can imagine factors into it.
1: Yes, ultimately, if you're talking about the tax situation, what what I would like to see, and I think what economists uh, and health economists in general would like to see, would be a structure of taxation that reflected the damage of uh, different products. So we would like to maintain very low taxes on vaping products. Uh, not quite as low taxes, perhaps, on heat-not-burn products, and then higher taxes on cigarettes. In in the one hand, you know, <clears throat> the taxes we impose on cigarettes, we've always been concerned that whenever governments raise taxes, that uh, smokers will go off into the illegal sector. But if we if we now have um, a good alternative product to um, illegal cigarettes, and if we adopted a public awareness campaign we might be able to to convince a number of people to switch away from the more toxic product to the less toxic product.
0: Back to my point uh, about how the vaporizer pen technology is a leap forward as far as the ability to consume, a conversation I had with uh, uh, an executive in the cannabis industry was, was really enlightening. Bruce Linton, formerly of, of Canopy Growth, had predicted to me that 35% of Canadians uh, would consume cannabis on a regular basis. You know, one in three adults. Uh, and so, back to the the technology making it so much easier to consume. It struck me that for a demographic that was curious but didn't want to deal with the smell and all of the. Uh, the the baggage that comes with cannabis consumption that this would have been the thin edge to the wedge to break open an entirely new market for that industry to sell into. Does the fear factor reduce that? Do you see that there actually will be uh, an uptick of any measurable quantity in the consumption of cannabis as a result of technologies that make it simpler and easier to consume? Is, is, is that a softball question the, the lob in your direction or is that a, a far more complex than it sounds?
1: Well, first of all, I'm um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the, the 35% number, whether that's a potential number down the road or whether that's an, an actual uh, number. I mean your, your, your question is your, your question is a very good one and I you know I wish I, could, I wish I could predict the future but uh, I can't obviously we you know we' we're, we're going to learn a good deal about um, cannabis consumption patterns in the coming year or two. We have you know at the federal level we have legalized a range of new products very recently that weren't uh, legalized in the original uh, bill c forty five in in late two thousand and eighteen and we'll just have to watch how the market evolves there. It's still the case, as you know, that in several of our provinces, legal sales of uh, cannabis are really low, and we think that's to do with the fact that the provincial monopolies have not been very successful in um, getting enough retail outlets out there. Uh, A couple of provinces, Alberta notably, has been an exception because they've got a couple hundred uh, retail outlets. Um, As far as cannabis is concerned, if we look at the consumption patterns in cannabis, Uh, it seems to be the case that uh, a relatively small number of people are responsible for consuming a disproportionately large part of the total market. And um, the numbers that I've seen for Canada mirror the numbers in the U.S. Maybe, you know, a a quarter of the population is responsible for, a quarter of the consuming population is responsible for consuming about three quarters or 80% of the total uh, amount of cannabis. So... um, I'm not really convinced that uh, these new technologies are going to result in everybody being high on cannabis all all the time. Um, If we look at cannabis legalization impacts in uh, the states that have legalized cannabis up to this point, um, particularly the early ones, Colorado, uh, Washington, Oregon, and so forth, I don't think that there is, I, I don't believe that there has been an enormous increase uh, in the total amount of cannabis consumed, because what you have to assume is that the cannabis was very readily available for anybody who wanted to consume it before legalization. And since most of the cannabis is consumed by a small percentage of cannabis consumers, when you legalize it, what you're really doing is you're, you're hoping to get those heavy users away from the illegal sector. But as far as new consumption is concerned, you're probably not going to get a lot of new heavy consumers. You'll get, you'll get a fair number of people who will be willing to experiment. But they have, if they had wanted to experiment, they would have been able to do it pre-legalization. So I'm not sure that we're going to get a huge increase in the total amount of cannabis. Even with the additional, the, additional, the new technology may facilitate um, consuming cannabis. But as I say, the new people who are going to come to consuming cannabis are are not going to be the heavy consumers. So I I don't see a huge increase in volume, even given that we have new technology available that helps us to consume it.
0: So when it comes to e-cigarette policy in general, um, you write that focusing upon the benefits of switching alone or the dangers of teen adoption alone are unlikely to increase population health. So what is the good policy solution here?
1: I think a policy solution is a, a public awareness campaign, uh, and we should educate smokers and non-smokers alike that there is a range of products out there that, um, you know, have different degrees of, of toxicity. What do we do with with other products, uh, Michael? Uh, think, think about when you um, go into your store. We 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 don't seem to worry about alcohol. Or gambling very much, but we're right now we're fixated on on e-cigarettes. I went into my local corner store here in Montreal West the other day, and I measured out the number of linear feet of counter space that were that were devoted to um, alcohol and beer. And I got 120 linear feet of space on shelving devoted to alcohol. This goes from the floor right up to uh, eye level, so it's it's alcohol is freely available. Uh, toddlers can see it. Uh, teenagers can see it. Adults can see it. When you go to the counter, what, you, what the first thing you see is th- there's a, a lotto terminal. Then you, you go to pay for your product and there is a, a transparent um, folio on the countertop that has all sorts of tickets there. So in your face for every transaction you make with a cashier in a corner store, uh, you're faced with uh, an incentive to gamble. You walk around to pick up your uh, your pound of butter and you're confronted with alcohol. But we have this incredible aversion to saying, hey smokers, why don't you switch to a reduced harm product?
0: Ian Irvine is an economics professor at Concordia University and a research fellow at the C.D. Howe. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, a webinar on Canada's international response to the COVID-19 pandemic with Marta Morgan, the Deputy Minister of Global Affairs Canada. That's June 18th. And on the 23rd, The Road Ahead. How will Toronto rebuild after the crisis with Joe Cressy, Toronto City Councillor and Chair of the Board of Health at Toronto Public Health. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.